Isaiah 1, 10 through 20. Uh, so we're in week two of Isaiah, week two of probably 50-something weeks in this. So still very much at the beginning of this book. Um, we're kind of going through a slow three-week kind of uh, thing in, in the first chapter. So we'll have this week and next week in chapter one, and, and then we'll um, actually uh, just kind of start taking it a little bit quicker pace. There's 66 chapters in Isaiah, so this could be a really, really long series, and I've, I've cut it down to about a year, uh, which is probably faster than, than it deserves, but, um, you know, we don't want to spend years and years uh, in this on, on a Sunday morning. So we're going to try to get it in, in under a year here or just about a year. Um, but we are going to take our time through Isaiah 1 because it is foundational to the book. It, it establishes what is going on and why God had Isaiah uh, speak these words and ultimately write these words down. And so we are, um, we're just taking our time through it. Now, last week, as we opened up the book, what we're seeing is uh, God speaking through this, this man, Isaiah. We don't know anything really about him as a person. We know a few little details about him. Um, but I think that's actually in some ways intentional because Isaiah's message wasn't about Isaiah at all. It was about how God saves sinners. In fact, Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. And so uh, even his name gives us a clue as to what his mission was, what his purpose was in writing this book or compiling this. This is a collection of a lifelong ministry as a prophet to Israel. And so uh, this, this spans a lot of years. It, it covers a lot of things. It goes over the course of four different kings, kings throughout this, this book. So it's a, uh, it's a lengthy work, uh, but it's, an, it's a collection, an edited form of Isaiah's entire ministry. And he begins the, the, the book by using, uh, speaking God's word to the people. And what God says to them in the very outset is, is this, children that I have reared and brought up have rebelled against me. Children that I have reared and brought up have rebelled against me. That is the heart of Isaiah's message. And God is calling his children, not his enemies, his people, to repentance calling them to come back home, calling them to return to the Lord. I said this, uh, that, that this was like God calling a family meeting, getting all his kids together. And he's going to tell them hard things, things they got to hear, things that they, they deserve to hear. Difficult message, but one they need to hear so that they're confronted with their sin, so that they would see their need for a savior. And that's really the heart of Isaiah. Uh, that, that they would respond to God's invitation to be healed, to be forgiven, to receive his grace. Sadly, um, we know that the people of Israel at this point in time did not do so. They did not listen or heed the words of Isaiah. Um, he was preaching really to deaf ears in a lot of ways, but it didn't stop him from preaching, didn't stop him from doing what God had called him to do, um, and so we, we get to just experience what they're being told. And hopefully there are things that overlap between what they're dealing with and what we deal with as God's people. And so uh, we're going to do that. And that's where we pick it up here in, in verse 10. Uh, before we get there, though, let me just remind you that as God calls these people in the first nine verses, he calls them a lot of things. 
He calls them rebellious. He, calls, he actually calls them stupid, flat out. He calls them stupid. And, and he says a lot of things that are offensive, uh, but they need to hear it so that they're confronted by their sin. And, and then he gives them a glimpse of hope in verse 9. And says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And so there's a glimpse of hope that God is not out to destroy his people, but he's out to save them. He's out to preserve them. And if he isn't doing that, then, then they're as hopeless as Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a story from the book of Genesis where very uh, vile, very immoral uh, cities that were God ultimately destroyed because of the wickedness and their unrepentance. Um, and it wasn't for lack of uh, calling them to repentance. Uh, they just refused. They flat out refused to turn to the Lord. And so the Lord brought justice and judgment on them. Um, and so what Isaiah is reminding us of is that that old story from the history of God's people uh, is it, they would have ended up just like that had God not spared them had God not spared them. And so there's the glimpse of hope. Now we get into verse 10 here and look at what he says next. Isaiah writes, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now this is actually quite shocking if, we, if you realize what's being said here. Um, Isaiah doesn't just compare them to Sodom and Gomorrah, like he did in verse 9. He actually turns this and then says, you are Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, don't think that you're better than them. Don't think that you're in a better place. Pay attention to what God says, Sodom. Open up your ears to the teaching of God, Gomorrah. And this is, this is amazing. This is like horrifically offensive. That, that God would, through Isaiah's mouth would, would say to them, would call them Sodom and Gomorrah. To the people of Israel at this point in time, they would have just wretched at this. This is just a horrifically offensive thing to, to call them. Um, and, and I don't know what there, if there's anything comparable. Uh, I, I can't come up with anything that's quite as comparable to, to this um, for us in our day, uh, unless you maybe compare us to Canada or something. I don't know, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. That's, that doesn't work at all because Canadians are much nicer than us. So um, never mind. I don't know. That doesn't work. But whatever it is, um, you, you, th- this is just a horrifically offensive thing to say. This is a really uh, shocking thing to say, to call them this. But then what he goes on to say is even more shocking. It's even crazier. Uh, because we're going to see it here. Uh, he's going to show them their problem. But he's telling them that they're Sodom and Gomorrah. So what was Sodom and Gomorrah's sin? Well, there was a lot of things. The Bible tells us that it was sexual in nature. It was sexual immorality. But it was also that they didn't love the stranger, that they were actually closed off from caring for uh, people in need. And there was a lot, so that it was a multi-layered issue in Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, but it, ultimately it was, uh, more immorality. And, and so you're going to think here, God's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah, so now he's going to call them out on their immorality, right? That's what you would expect. But that's not what he does. Look at verse 11. 11 through 15, uh, we're going to look at here. And we'll just read all these verses uh, here at once and then kind of back up. He says, What to me 
is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hand, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now, why do I say that this is a shocking, crazy thing for God to do as he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah? Because what he's, com- what he's complaining about, what his complaint, his, what he's showing them their problem is, is their worship. Do you notice that? Like, what, everything he's talking about is worship. And then, by the way, them doing the things that God told them to do in the book of Leviticus. <laughs> so he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah, notoriously immoral people, and, and yet what his complaint to the people of Israel is, is I'm sick of your sacrifices. I'm sick of you showing up to church. I'm sick of you doing all these things and burning this incense and going through all these convocations and, and having these solemn assemblies and, and I'm sick of you praying to me. That, that's crazy, isn't it? Like it really is. What is God talking about? What in the world is this about? You, he's not calling them out on their blatant immorality. He's calling them out on their worship how they respond to him, what they do for him. That's really crazy. So, so this, some, this is something we've got to really unpack here. This is something we've got to spend some good time on because here's the problem. Here's what God is saying to them. He compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. He actually calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. But then what his issue is with them, as you read those verses, as we look at them, is that they are going through the right motions. They are doing the right things, but they don't love God. That's the problem. They are continuing to do the right things. They are going through the motions that they're supposed to. They're following the letter of the law, but they're not following the spirit of the law which is love God, love people, right? And so God is going, I'm disgusted by your, your worship. I, he's, he's, he's actually going so far as to say, I would rather you not worship me at all than worship me like this. That's very interesting. He, he's actually saying that if, if they're going to do this, he's going to completely shut his ears to them. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough. I've had it up to here with your sacrifices, uh, with your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. He goes so far as to say he does not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. But this is the thing. In Leviticus, he told them to do all this stuff. He told them to bring these 
these animals. He told them to offer these sacrifices. And now he's telling them, I'm, I've, had it, I've had it up to here with it. I'm, uh, it's enough. I'm done. I'm finished with this. He says, you're trampling my courts. He, he says he can't endure the things that they're doing. He hates it. He actually says his soul hates what they're doing. You don't want God's soul to hate what you're doing. That's a bad place to be. And that's where they're at. So, so let's, let's just take this under a microscope a little bit and look at what is the problem. I think there's a clue. I think there's a clue in verse 13 on what the issue really is. And it's actually a twofold issue. Uh, it all boils down to one big issue, which is that their worship is being conducted accurately, correctly, but without the heart for him that they were supposed to have. Like the law in and of itself is meant to drive us to Jesus, not to just be something that we jump through a bunch of hoops. So there's the problem as a whole, but there's two kind of lanes that this is taking. And that's where verse 13 is helpful. The first line and the final line of verse 13 gives us these two lanes that they are driving in. He says this in the first line, bring no more vain offerings. That's, I think, key. What's the problem? It's not that they're doing these things because they're doing what they were told to do. It's that they're doing these things in vain. So what does that mean? What does that word vain mean? Well, um, Ecclesiastes is, of course, helpful because that word vanity is used over and over again. And what vanity means, at least in, in this context, is it's meaninglessness. It's meaningless. What God is saying is, don't bring me any more meaningless offerings. Don't bring to me things in worship that you don't have a heart to bring me. That's what he's saying. We could call it this. In our, in our common day or more, I guess, more modern terminology, we would call this legalism. Legalism is doing good and right things with the belief that we are right with God because we do those things. Legalism is something that pervades the church of Jesus Christ. It's, it's going through the hoops without actually loving God. That's what legalism is. It's doing good things and right things, but it's doing them because we think God will love us more if we do them. Or that we somehow earn our righteousness before God because of them. That's what's happening. At least that's what this means when you talk about a vain offering. You're bringing something to God that he commanded them to bring, but they were doing it with meaninglessness. They were doing it with a, an empty heart. Thinking, okay, I just got to jump through the hoop. I don't love God, but I got to do this to keep him off my back. Got to show up. Got to go through the motions. And legalism is really difficult. Um, and, and I think it, it's, it's pervasive. It's a weed that has just overgrown in so many of our churches. And it's difficult because um, from an outward point of view, it, it looks like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Like you're doing good things. People are doing good things when they're legalists. They're, they're worshiping, they're coming to church, they're, they're giving money, they're, they're doing all kinds of things. And that's, 
Those are all externally good, right, things that God calls us to do. And yet, it's hard because we can't uh, diagnose the heart as well as God can. And so we, we, but we, I think we don't hate legalism as much as God does. I really don't think we do. I think we are so much quicker to, to be disgusted by outward blatant sin than we are about a legalistic heart. We're so much more disgusted by a, a blatant sin than we are a legalistic heart. And I don't think that's how God is. I think God hates outward blatant sin too. In fact, we're going to see that at the end of verse 13. But, we, but God hates legalism. He hates it. He hates it so much he had Paul write the book of Galatians to deal with it. <laughs> and Galatians is, we've, we've done that book, we've taught through that book, it's such an important book. Um, but legalism, is, it's, it's doing the right things, but it's not doing them for the right reasons. And I get why we don't have as much of a problem with it, because we can't figure out what's in someone's heart until there's a lot of like diagnosing happening. I think that there are clues that you can pick up uh, from, a, from the pulpit or from the people in a church and discerning whether they're legalistic or not. Uh, generally, a good indication is if, if everything's about what you do for God and nef- nothing about what Jesus did for you, run from that church. Run as fast as you can uh, because that's, that is the heart of legalism. It's about what we do for God, not what he did for us. And what we believe is that what God did for us overflows in what we do for others and for, for each other and for him, right? So it's gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. That's what we always say here. It's, it's that we, we believe that what God has done for us leads us to do the right things, but it's not the other way around. It's not doing the good things that leads to God doing good things for us or loving us. That's basically just a Christianized version of karma, which is not the gospel. And so we got to be very careful with legalism. We got to hate it. And that's really what God is saying here. He's disgusted by their legalism. But he's not just that disgusted by that. There's other issues here. And look at the end of verse 13. Um, it says this. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. So here's clue number two. God cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. These are two things that don't belong in the same sentence, but things that were happening in Israel and and really happen in the church too uh, today. But what God is saying is, is he doesn't want us to bring vain offerings. He doesn't want our legalistic obedience, but he also doesn't want us to come into worship with unrepentant hearts and blatant iniquitous sin. So iniquity is, a, is not a word you throw out a whole lot in your modern uh, language today, right? I don't talk about, unless it's in the Bible, we don't really talk about the word iniquity. We don't just say that word very often in conversation. So iniquity, is, it's important to define it. And, and here's how it's defined. Um, it's a, it is blatant, open rebellion against God. That's what the word iniquity means. Just blatant, open rebellion. Going, you know what? I don't care what God thinks about this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do whatever sinful thing I want to do because I want to do it, and I don't care what the consequences or what God's thoughts are on it. That's iniquity. And so what they're doing here is incredible. They're bringing together solemn assemblies. They're gathering together in a solemn 
you know, very uh, holy kind of outwardly way. And yet what they're doing as they approach that is they're just harboring open rebellion against God without repentance. This is what we would call in uh, theological circles, we'd call this licentiousness. It's a big word. It means just license, right? You have freedom to do whatever you want to do, no consequences, no problems. God doesn't care what you do, so just go on uh, being, uh, just doing whatever you want. You could call it licentiousness. You could call it antinomianism. And again, you don't need to write these words down. So, uh, but but um, that's, that's what this is, like being against what God says and just saying, I want to live how I want to live. This is the other lane that we, uh, we can drive down in the church. Doing what you want without repentance. And God says, no more. I can't endure it. I can't continue on with this. We, we've got to get rid of this. this is, I think this is two sides of the same coin. You have legalism and you have license. And, and they're both wicked before the Lord. He hates them both. We tend to hate iniquity more than we hate legalism. But they're both wicked before the Lord. And, and really, these are I, I've been calling these lanes that we can drive down, but really they're not lanes. They're ditches. Every road has two ditches, Right? And so you have, uh, you're driving down the road and as long as you're on the road, you're centered on the gospel. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is why I should live the way I live because Jesus loves me, died for me, saved my soul, transforms me, sanctifies me, all these things, right? This is what motivates me for living the way I should live because Jesus lived perfectly for me. He died in my place. He rose again. And, and whenever we veer off of the gospel, we land in one of two ditches. You're going to land in the ditch of legalism, which is generally going to be the ditch on the right. It's the, the, the right side ditch. It's like, you know what? I'm doing good things. I probably have, you know, the right view of God or at least of the Bible. I, I probably hold him in some esteem, but I don't really love him. Um, and so I'm just going to veer off and I'm going to drive into this ditch over here. You have the ditch on the left, which is license and going, you know, I don't care what God thinks. I'm just going to go do my thing. And we drive into that ditch. Here's the problem. Uh, both ditches are harmful, equally harmful. Both ditches are going to destroy your car. They're going to destroy your life. And if you continue in them without repentance, These are the ditches that we have to avoid. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the center of the lane. It's where we ought to be driving in safety and security and and all the things that that he offers us. Um, When a church or a person veers off left or right, um, they cease to be what God wants them to be. And this is a big thing that we've got to hear because the church is filled with both of these problems. Our church is filled with these problems. Every church is, because every person who walks into this church is going to have a bent towards one or the other in, in so far as we are not centered on the gospel. In so far as we are not centered on the work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Christ, we are going to veer towards one or the other. Now, depending on your upbringing, depending on how you grew up, depending on whether you were a churchgoer or not, or whatever you were, um, is going to determine more or less where you veer. Some of you may veer more towards just 
blatant, open sin and rebellion against God. And some of you are going to veer towards uh, the belief that, you know what, I'm okay because I'm not like those people in the left ditch. That's legalism. I'm, the whole time I'm driving in this right ditch and just destroying myself, but I'm going to look across the road and go, ha, well, at least I'm not in that ditch. <laughs> How stupid are we? That's, that's what God's saying. Like, it's you judging somebody from one ditch to the other is not what God wants. God wants us in the center lane. He wants us on the road. He wants us on, centered on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So here's, here's the thing. Now, we've seen our problem, but what is the solution? What does God offer us in this? He, do, he doesn't just leave this alone and go, okay, here's your problem. I'm sick of all your worship. You're disgusting to me. I'm, I'm out of here. He doesn't stop there. That This is where grace begins to, to make its appearance. And we're going to look at verse 16 through 20. Um, but verse 16 and 17 is where we'll, we'll camp for a couple minutes here. He says this, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So God begins to give them the solutions to their issue, which is um, correct yourself. Wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil, right? Do good, not evil. Seek justice, correct the oppression we see in the world. Bring justice to the fatherless and the widow. Care for people. Now, we read that, and if we just stop there, here's how we're going to take this. We're going to take this as, okay, I'm going to buckle up, and I'm going to do this. And all the while, we're going to be driving in the legalism ditch (laughs) the whole time because we're just going to try to fix ourselves. We're going to try to do this on our own. God said, clean your hands, wash those hands, figure your life out, get it going, learn to do good, right? If we, if we take that and we just leave that there, we're going to think, man, I've got to fix myself. Is that where it goes? This is why we read Bible, the Bible in context, because if you keep reading, there's no way you can interpret it that way. Look, look at what he says in verse 18. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Come on, let's figure this out. Here's what I'm calling you to. This is the end result of what I want you to be. I want you to be clean. I want you to be removed of evil. I want you to do good. I want you to care about those who are hurting in the world. I want that. That's what I want from you. But how do we get there? God says, come on. Come to me. Let's reason together. That word reason, it could be translated dispute. Let's hash this out, is what God's inviting them to. And, he sa- and then he says this. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, 
they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Now, in verse 18, we see the gospel. Here's what God says to us. Come to me with all of your sin, with all of your red-stained hands and clothes. You're stained with blood. You're guilty. You, are, you, you deserve judgment. But if you come to me, if you come to me, your sins, though they're like scarlet, they will be, not could be, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will become like wool. God is saying to us that if we approach him in humility and repentance and acknowledge that we need him to wash us clean, to wipe away the sin, to, to remedy all the problems of our hearts, then and only then will we be able to live the kind of life that he calls us to live. The, what he calls us to is a big thing. He calls us to perfection, which we never measure up to. And so we only have red stains to come and bring to him. And he says, if you do that, if you come to me, you will be washed white as snow. In verse 19, he says, if you're willing and obedient. Here's the thing. If you're willing and obedient, obedience is not connected back, by the way. It's not connected back to doing all these good things. It's connected back to come now. Come on. Come back to me. Let's reason this out. Let's figure this out. If you're willing to come to the Lord in repentance and bringing your sin, you know what? And it's hard to do because our sin is like scarlet. It's embarrassing. It's, it's obvious. It's, it's in your face. It's like red is the most like obnoxious color, right? And so you, you, we're bringing him this sin that's just so blatantly obvious. It's so horrific. And, and yet what he promises us is if we come to him, if we're obedient to come to him, if we're obedient to repent of our sins, then we will uh, be accepted, approved of, and ultimately um, transformed. But here's the thing. This is only a, a piece of the issue, right? Isaiah wrote these words hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world. The ultimate solution to this, the ultimate dealing with this is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're called to come, but we're called to come to him through Jesus. Let me take you to a couple of passages in the New Testament just to draw this out. Um, first, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and then we'll look at Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. And so here's what Paul says to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians were a church that was really dealing with a lot of licentiousness, a lot of blatant, open rebellion to the Lord. And listen to these words. Verse 9, Paul says this, 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now again, you read that and you go, well, we're all doomed, right? Like We can't inherit the kingdom of God if we're these things. All of us are at least one of these things. If you don't believe that, we can sit down and talk about it. I, I'm convinced I can show you, at least from my own life and probably from your life, where you fail in, in one or several of these areas. But I probably don't need to because I think you, you should see it in your own life. So let's not stop at verse 10. Let's look at verse 11. Here's the gospel hope. I love this. And such were some of you. The, the church in Corinth was filled with people who were sexually immoral, uh, committing adultery, homosexuality, stealing, greed, drunkenness, reviling, swindling, all these things, right? And Paul's going, and some of you were that, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says there is no one in the church who's going to measure up perfectly and all of us look at our lives and go, you know what, I'm guilty of sin, but I'm, I'm washed. I'm, I'm sanctified. I'm justified in the name of Jesus there's, there's no sin that you've committed that God isn't going to forgive if you come to him. There's no, there's no thing in your life that won't be washed clean if you come to him. There's, there's nothing there. Now, we could deceive ourselves and we could convince ourselves that, yeah, that list is bad, but I don't, I don't qualify for that list, so I must be pretty good on my own. Well, Paul writes the book of Galatians to combat that. We're not going to look at it, but... Um, we can go to the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 11, verse 28. Here's what Jesus says. Here's the invitation. I think that this, this is very similar to what God is saying to the people in Isaiah's day. Come, let's reason together. Here's what Jesus says. He says, come to me. There's the invitation. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Here's here's what he is telling us. This actually is an amazing thing and I think the Lord gave me some insight on this that I didn't see before as I studied this this week. But he says two things. He invites us to come to him all So there's the invitation, right? Everybody's invited to this. Not some, but all who are one of two things. Notice that? He invites people who labor and people who are heavy laden. What is the difference in those things? 
I think it's the difference between a legalist and a licentious person. The legalist is laboring to make themselves right with God. And Jesus says, you know what? You legalists should come to me and I'm going to give you rest from your labor. You're trying so hard to make yourself right with me, but all you have to do is come. Bring your sin and hand it to me. He also gives rest to the heavy laden. Uh, Heavy laden is a word that just means burdened, right? You're, You're overwhelmed by the weight of something. And I really think that that's where somebody who's living in a licentious way is gonna get to. Because you're gonna feel eventually the weight of your sin. It's gonna weigh you down. It's gonna crush you. And if you're just continually rebelling in open sin against the Lord, you're, that, the weight of, of, and guilt of that is gonna get you to a point where you're about ready to collapse. And Jesus invites you too and says, you know what, you've got a heavy load on your back from all your sin, all your shame, all your brokenness. I'll take that weight. I'll give you rest. I'm going to offer you what you need today, whether you're a legalist or licentious. He's, Jesus is gracious to all who come to him, and every sin we repent of is forgiven because Jesus paid it all. He did everything he had to do to pay for every sin. The only thing that stands in our way is our pride. And maybe that's a hurdle too big to overcome right now. But if we are humble and we admit our wrongdoing and bring it to him, we experience the freedom that we will treasure forever pastor um, who just recently retired from pastoral ministry. He's doing other things now. Um, A guy named Ray Ortland. I'll just give him credit. He's the one who gave us, not like me directly, but through his writing and through his preaching, gave me this gospel doctrine, gospel culture kind of paradigm. And I'm grateful eternally for Ray Ortland for that. And there was something else that he wrote, though, that was extremely helpful. Here's what he says. He says that we can be impressive or we can be known, but we can't be both. Why not follow Jesus away from the falsehood of an impressive image into the freedom of vulnerability and honesty? That's, I think, the heart of what repentance looks like. The reason we're so slow to repent is because we want to be impressive. We want, to, we want people to look at us and not judge us, not feel like we're uh, short, you know, shortcoming and all these things. We, we want to be impressive, but we can't be impressive and be known at the same time. We've got to be one or the other. And Jesus invites us to come to him, to lay down the pretense of an impressive image and embrace the freedom of vulnerability and honesty Would you be honest with the Lord this morning? Would you be honest with someone that you know in this room this morning? We want to help you. We love you. We we want to help you experience the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you need that, don't hesitate to talk with me. Talk to the person that invited you here. 
or a close friend that's in this room, but we need to, to come to him and we need to heed the invitation from the word. So let me pray for us and then we'll continue our worship this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you invite us to come to you. And we, it's, an, it's an invitation that we need to stand up and, and obey. Would you give us the heart to do that this morning? Would you help us in this to repent of all the sin in our hearts, whether it's legalism or license, whether it's open iniquity or whether it's just jumping through the hoops? Would you change our hearts so that we would love you? And we ask, you, ask all these things in your name. Amen.